You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. Good morning. Thank you all for being with us here today. Um, so as, uh, as Max and Bob mentioned, this is the start of the most important week uh, in the Christian calendar. Um, it's the start of Holy Week, and uh, this is where we move from the teaching part of Jesus' life into uh, what's Good Friday, where Jesus dies, and then Easter Sunday, where ultimately the resurrection happened. Spoiler alert if you didn't finish the book yet. Um, I just want to start with who grew up uh, with Palm Sunday as a tradition in the church that they attended? Okay. A lot of people. Okay. Uh, Did you grow up waving palms? Did you get palms? Or did you kind of just hear a message? How many grew up sort of with a palm every year? Uh, I did. I, I was raised in a Catholic church, and every year um, we, would, we would get palms, and uh, my dad, who's actually in a, my parents are in attendance this morning, but my dad would fold them into some weird origami cross that I could never figure out how that worked. Um, in recent years, a lot of churches, especially evangelical churches, have started to refer to this as Passion Sunday instead of Palm Sunday. Um, they, this week becomes a time to talk about the suffering and the death of Jesus before Easter, where we're going to talk about the resurrection. Um, so that has become, over the, the last decade, kind of the, the popular thing to do. But I think that Palm Sunday is a really, really important period, a really important moment in the life of Jesus, especially towards the end of his life. And I think that not talking about it and not really thinking about it does a disservice to the teachings of Jesus, and it kind of weakens the meaning and message of his ultimate uh, death on Good Friday. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Now, if you've been around Central for a little bit, you know that we talk about a lot of different things here. Sometimes we get really philosophical, and sometimes we get really deep in theology. A couple weeks ago, we were talking about black liberation theology and womanist theology, and we'll get really heady in those directions. Today, we're going to get pretty historical. We're going to talk about the history behind what the event of Palm Sunday was and what really was going on there. so bear with me. We're going to try to uh, make it as entertaining and, and, as we can, but it's going to be a bit of a history lesson today. So we're going to start our lesson, we're going to start our talk really by doing something wild, and that is reading the Bible. Uh, specifically, we're going to read from the book of Mark, which does a really good job of uh, giving a, a sort of day-by-day and step-by-step account of that last week of Holy Week of Jesus' life. Um, so we'll probably have the words on the screen above us. Um, When they were approaching Jerusalem, at Bethpage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, and he said to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Just say this, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here immediately. They went away and they found a colt tied near a door outside in the street. As they were untying it, some of the bystanders said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? Why are you stealing this donkey? Uh, They told them what Jesus had said and they allowed them to take it. 
And then they brought the colt to Jesus. They threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. Now, many people spread their cloaks on the road and others spread palm branches that they had cut in fields. Then those who went ahead and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor, David, Hosanna in the highest heaven. Then he entered Jerusalem and he went into the temple. When he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went back to Bethany with the 12. Now, I don't know about you and the messages that you heard growing up, um, but for me, especially in uh, recent years before coming to Central, when I was attending more evangelical churches, uh, this was often framed as this message of, so the people are really excited that Jesus is here finally in Jerusalem. They throw him a parade and some people accept Jesus and that's great. And some people then reject Jesus and they crucify him. And don't you want to be one of the people who accepts Jesus? That's sort of the message that I hear. Or maybe uh, sometimes there's a message of, well, they thought they were getting a king, but they really got a Messiah who was saving their souls. And, and that, you know, and so that was kind of an interesting thing. But the story here is actually incredibly heavy and subversive, and there's a lot kind of going on within just these 11 verses. So let's start here with a pretty bold statement. What's happening here is a premeditated and deliberate and staged counter-protest that Jesus is leading. Has anybody ever heard that before? Wondering if that's a couple people. Okay. Now, if you're paying close attention to the reading, you might have noticed a couple of clues here. This is a rare staged event that Jesus is putting on. He intentionally tells people to go out to get him this donkey and to say some specific things to people when they're asked about it. Most of the stories, if you think about it, most of the stories in the Gospels that we get are Jesus traveling around and teaching and things kind of just randomly happen to him. A good example of that would be a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the woman with the affliction of bleeding, right? Jesus is in a crowd. She touches his cloak. It just sort of kind of happens to him along his journey. Very rarely do we have an event that happens where Jesus intentionally sets out or pre-plans the event that is, that's going to happen, pre-plans what he's going to do. And on top of that, it's very rare that Jesus is actually in Jerusalem, in the Holy City. He spends most of his time sort of off in these towns teaching. But he's here and he's staging this counter protest. So this is a spring day. It's roughly the year 30. And two separate processions are happening in Jerusalem on this day. Now, on one side, we have coming in from the east, the procession of Jesus. Now, we know he's coming in from the east because that part that I tend to always gloss over when I'm reading the Bible, where Mark adds the cities that they were in, Bethpage and Bethany, that tells us that Jesus was coming in from the eastern side into the city of Jerusalem. Now, Jesus, of course, comes from Nazareth, which was a peasant village. He comes from a peasant class. Most of his followers would have also come from sort of the peasant class. And they have just are completing a journey of about 100 miles from Galilee south into Nazareth. Now, they've completed this whole journey, but it's really just from Bethany, which is about two miles out, about 40 minutes on a donkey or sort of uh, on foot, only about two miles out. He says, hey, now I want to ride a donkey. Now go get me something to actually ride on. And so then they, they come into the city. And of course, like I said, the people are rejoicing. They're shouting Hosanna, laying down these palm branches. 
But on the opposite side of the city, on the same day, would have been another procession. Now, this was Pontius Pilate, the Roman governors, the Roman rulers, and they are coming in at the head of an army of imperial cavalry and soldiers. This is a parade that's not explicitly mentioned in any of the Gospels. But what we know is, like a lot of things when we read the, the Bible, there's a lot of subtext and imagery that would have been really, really clear to people of the first century who were reading it that wouldn't have needed to be said, because they would have understood it given the context that they were reading in. It was standard practice for the Roman governors to come into Jerusalem for the major, for the major festivals of the year. Jerusalem's a city of about 40,000 people, but during Passover, that goes up to about 200,000 people who are coming in to do the sacrifice. So that brings with it, right, a lot of busyness, a lot of potential crime, potential trouble. They want to be there in force. And to top it off, Passover is specifically a celebration of a time when the Jewish people were liberated from a previous empire. So they want to say, we're here. Don't forget about us. We're the, we're the power here. It's a demonstration of Roman power. And you can kind of imagine what that might have looked like, right? You've seen Ben-Hur or Gladiator or some old Roman film, Troy, I don't know. Um, but you can, you can hear the footsteps, the, the, the horses coming in. You can see the bright colors of the armor, the, the weapons, the spears, the swords, maybe the drumming, the chanting. This is a real big military parade. On the other side, we have Jesus coming in on the donkey. Maybe it's sort of like, a tank coming in from the West and a guy on a bicycle coming in from the East. And we're talking about different things here, right? To top that off, this is Jerusalem, a city that obviously, you know, was important for the people of uh, the Jewish people of the time for 900 years. This has been the center and of the, the sacred center of the Jewish world inside the temple and the Holy of Holies is considered the one place, one physical place where God actually exists in the world, his dwelling place. The, the temple's the mediator for a lot of forgiveness of sins, right? So it's a mediator between God and people. The city's also the center of the social system. Now, the Jewish people lived in what some people refer to as a domination system. This is a system that most of the ancient world lived in, and it's kind of laid out by three rules. One is political oppression. So the people of the time the, the normal people, the everyday peasants, didn't have a voice or the ability to really uh, make any change in the world. Two is ex economic exploitation. The majority of the money was being funneled into the pockets of the ultra-wealthy and the, the powerful. It's expected that it's, it's um, estimated about half to two-thirds of the, of the average money or of the finances of uh, the Jewish people were put into the pockets of the ultra-wealthy and the powerful and religious justification. So the people in power are using religious language to justify the oppression that they're bringing on the people in order to keep things uh, at bay. This again, wasn't unusual or unique to the Jewish people. And it's definitely something that we can't uh, maybe relate to nowadays at all, right? Political oppression, economic exploitation and religious language. Okay. Uh, but the, the Romans conquered the Jewish people they ruled through the temple system. This is something that we miss a lot. The temple wasn't just the religious center of Jerusalem, but the, the temple worked in conjunction with the political 
And the temple was a place they they would they were the center of the imperial tax system. They collected the annual tribute that was paid to Rome. Even the records of people's debt to Rome were stored inside the temple. Herod, for example, uh, the high priests were often or were typically uh, serving for life. But during the reign of King Herod, he changed the high priest, I think, seven or eight times because he wanted to make sure that the people who were in charge of the temple were people that were working in conjunction with the political to, uh, to make sure that they were people that were working sort of uh, together. So maybe we might see how this is complex. This is complicated. We're unpacking something interesting that Jesus is doing here, as opposed to just coming in to say, hey, guys, I'm here. Now, people of the first century would have been really familiar with other imagery as well. For example, that donkey that's mentioned in the story, a specific donkey, a colt that has never been ridden. This is coded language. Uh, this, is, this is language coming from a prophecy of Zechariah that prophesies a ruler that's going to come in and overthrow the people. Um, the prophecy, see your king comes to you triumphant and victorious as he humble and riding on a donkey, the colt on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Prophecy goes on to say that this person's going to take over. He's going to be the king. He's going to rule from sea to sea. This is a political and social prophecy. This is an overthrow of the government kind of prophecy. And you wonder, well, do the crowds get this reference? We know they do because the Hosanna stuff that they're shouting is messianic language about a conqueror coming in. This is from Psalms. And so this is specific language, again, that they're using to shout at Jesus. Now, another example of what we see in this uh, stuff that they would have understood are these palm branches, the ones that we passed out, the ones that we have up here, the name of the holiday itself. See, 200 years prior to the triumphal entry, another savior was welcomed into the city of Jerusalem following an event called the Maccabean Revolt. So this was Judas Maccabeus, and he was a violent revolutionary who used these guerrilla war tactics to, uh, to liberate the Jewish people, to win Israel's independence. His story is recorded in the book of Maccabeus, which we would consider something called the Apocrypha. And that is up here. The next one. The Jews entered with praise and palm branches and with harps and cymbals and stringed instruments, with hymns and songs. A great enemy had been crushed and removed from Israel. Interesting. More than that, the Roman Empire grows. They take over uh, Israel. And this king takes over Israel. And when he does so, he has a big military parade. And one of the things that he does is he demands that people lay palm branches on the ground in celebration. And this becomes a thing that becomes really popular. So at all of the Roman celebrations, they're laying palm branches after all of the victories to the point that a well, victory starts to be called winning a palm in Roman texts to the point that every time Rome is having a big parade, we're having palm branches. And now it is illegal to use palm branches in celebrations that aren't involving the army of Rome and the politics of Rome. Yet here comes Jesus. He's coming specifically, deliberately. He sends out word ahead of him using coded language that the people would have understood was relating to a prophecy. And what do they do? They come and they do something. They lay palm branches. If you have that palm branch, take a look at it. What you have is a symbol 
of civil and political disobedience. What you have is a revolutionary symbol that, set, that is something illegal that we now still celebrate today. Again, you can see how complex, how subversive, how complicated this all seems to be. The most important holiday in the Jewish calendar. Two different processions. Jesus, the Romans. Two protests, a religious one and a political one. All tied up together. And basically everybody in power across the board, Jesus is taking them off. Often with Jesus, this is what is happening. We're reminded time and time again when we read the words of Jesus that the political and the religious are not separate worlds. He comes and he's feeding people. He's caring for people. He's forgiving people, something you weren't able to do outside of ritual or within the temple. This is part of that thing, the overlapping realms of, of the kingdom of God and the earth, the political and the social all tied up together. And one thing I think of when I look at this is really a reminder for myself that everything that we do today is also a combination of the political, the social, and the theological wrapped into one. The choices we make on our day-to-day -day basis, right? the clothes we wear, the way we buy our coffee, but also the big things that we choose to do, the things that we choose to show up for. The ways that we show up for what Jesus would have called the least of these. Speaking out for those in our communities, those in our loved ones, those we don't even know, who often have their voices silenced, those who are oppressed, those who are treated differently because of their gender expression, their orientation, the color of their skin, their need of housing, their need of medical care, their need of love. These palms remind us that when we engage of action, in actions of care for those around us, when we engage in these actions, when we follow the true words of Jesus, forgiving radically, loving others in our communities, caring for our neighbors and ourselves, when we act like Jesus, we are engaging in the theological and the political. We are engaging in this overlapping protest against so much of what's going on in the world around us. We're subverting the conflation of blind nationalism with religion, something that definitely doesn't happen today ever. And frankly, it can sometimes piss a lot of people off. And that's part of what is happening in the story. It's in these actions of radical love, though, for people around us, that we find the event of the radical God. It's in this space that we come together to share with those around us, that we find that connection to that overlapping world. Now, if only there was a reminder of this constantly around us as we walk around Los Angeles. One more piece of history really quick. Did you know, did you know that palm, brand, that palm trees are not native to Los Angeles? Raise your hand if you knew that. Did anybody know this? A few people knew this. I did not. I'm not native to Los Angeles either, though. Maybe that's part of it. But there is there is one type of palm tree that's uh, not seen very often. That's, that's native. But the tall, thin palm trees that you see are not native to Los Angeles. The big, sort of leafy, feathery ones, not native to here. They were planted here in the 1700s by the Spanish missionaries. And they were planted to remind us of the life of Jesus. They're planted to remind us of Palm Sunday. 
and ornamental symbolism as a reminder of this holiday. So maybe my invitation to you, as you move through this upcoming week, as you move through Holy Week, through these days, as Jesus moves through the last week of his life towards Friday and towards Sunday, and even beyond that through the rest of the year, when you see those palm trees, when you're driving around LA, just every once in a while, let that be a reminder to you that when we engage in this radical love, we are engaging in the way that Jesus engaged. We're doing, we're walking in the feet of Jesus in that social and political and theological realm that becomes overlapped in the world around us. As we talk about sometimes in this church, in Micah 6, 8, what we're doing is we're acting justly, love, mercy, walking humbly with our God when we engage in these types of places. Now we're going to move on from here. We're going to move to uh, one other ritual that happens over the course of Holy Week, a ritual that we do here at Central every week, and that is uh, taking communion together. So on Thursday night, this upcoming Thursday, the night before Jesus' death, we have the the first instance um, or what we think of as the Last Supper of Jesus, right? Where Jesus took the bread and he took the cup and he shared it with those around him in much the way that he was doing throughout his entire ministry, feeding the poor, sharing his message with others. And he does it specifically And he says, do this in remembrance of me. Do this as a way to remember what I was here for and what my message was. Again, here at Central, we do this uh, weekly. We do this maybe a little different from other churches if you haven't been around Central that much. The way that we do it is we serve each other the Lord's Supper. So we have gluten-free crackers. We have grape juice. What we invite you to do is dip the cracker in the grape juice and eat it and then serve the person next to you. And we do this again as a reminder that we are the feet of Jesus in the world around us. We are the serve, we are serving the body of Christ to everybody else around us. Now, this table for this communion is free and open to anybody who wants to partake. Be blessed in this. Each episode of the Central Cast is followed by an interactive discussion. If you'd like to participate in recordings, or if you're interested in exploring progressive faith and theology for a postmodern context, check out centralavenuechurch.org. Here's this week's unedited discussion. So if you've been around Central, you know this, but if you haven't, uh, every week, one of the things that we do is after uh, whoever's speaking, we have a time of of Q&A, time of conversation, discussion. Feel free to ask questions, share thoughts that come up, tell me I'm wrong, whatever you feel like doing. Um, Yeah, Jason. If we can get the other mic for Uh, so two thoughts one how big is the movement that jesus is the head of or whatever because um 
this seem if this is an overtly political mm -hmm. thing, right? There's people that are cheering them on. <clears throat> like, are we talking Donald Trump size? You know, 15% of the population is on his side or, or what? Cause like in the Bible, it feels like it's just like 12 dudes and then people show up in the small towns because there's nothing else to do, but it sounds more like there's like a big percentage. Right. And then my other point on that is if this is a, an overtly political dig at Pontius Pilate and Rome and all that, then no wonder the people who were there were thinking, yeah, we're going to get another Maccabean king, right? Who's going to take, you know, overthrow everything, get your swords ready, let's go fight. And we're taught in the evangelical circle or whatever that those folks that thought that were wrong and Jesus knew all the whole time that he was going to be like a lamb to slaughter and not a king or whatever. And I, I don't particularly buy that. And I also don't personally think Jesus necessarily knew what was going to happen. I think I could be wrong, but it feels like maybe that stuff was added later or whatever. The whole like, I'm going to die and be raised again type thing. So if he didn't die, I wonder what he could have done. Like what would have happened in when he was 34, or 35, or 36? Um, you know, maybe he would have launched a revolution. Who knows? Yeah, great questions. I think uh, it's interesting. We, you know, we don't, we know, right? We have some stories where he's feeding what the 5,000 we talk. So we know that there are times where we have large crowds, but all the gospels ever really give us for this is the crowds showed up. Um so I think you can, you can, the image I've always, I've always had is a small group of people are coming into Jerusalem. They use that coded link. You know, they're, they're sort of saying, Hey, we're going to, we're going to do a thing. We're going to do a protest. And then a bunch of people are like, Whoa, okay, cool. This is finally happening. And then they show up and yeah. Um, I've often heard that same, right. Uh, I, I think there can be a kernel of truth in there without maybe the, even if you're removing the the evangelical, like Jesus knew, so he was going to be the lamb of slaughter. There, there's a an idea of Jesus doing what some people call like the third way thinking, which is like he kind of knew that he was not going to be showing up in the way that he was suggesting, and so people think he's getting it. They're getting a political leader. Some people think they're getting some, you know, the, the rose over here and he's showing up kind of in the middle saying like, I kind of got all of you and I'm talking about a different thing that it's sort of maybe raising, uh, getting everybody's attention to try to say, but I'm talking about taking care of the poor and I'm talking about peace. And I'm, but this is sort of a way to get sort of attention in the moment. I don't know. It's a good question. Um, I had another thought, but I can't remember what it was. But thanks. Yeah, I, I think, you know, it's uh, there's a lot of questions it brings up. Definitely. Yeah, Marcia. Mm -hmm. And because of the court, and then out, mm -hmm. and that's uh, the 
Here, yeah, with what Marshall was saying is the, the kings would have come in or a conquering leader would have come in on a large horse. Jesus is coming in on a donkey, uh, which is a, a symbol of peace. I also think of it as a symbol of the everyday person, right? Not a big, expensive, ornate horse, but a, a something that would have been used probably for work, for the farming, you know, or for local transportation as well, right? Um, a different symbol than what people would have expected as well. Yeah, that's good. Any other thoughts, comments, questions? Yeah, Jason, could you pass the microphone over? Thanks. First here and then up to you. Yeah, just a quick question. I was wondering when, I don't remember those uh, Bible verses very well. So when Jesus was doing that and entered the city, do you think that the Romans at the time wanted to arrest Jesus right away. They were just afraid because he had such a, a large following at the time. Um, there is. So one thing that, that came up in, in when I was researching and thinking about this over this last week is there is a, a line uh, in an, in an old text that says like, basically better that we deal with one person or that we like kill one person to stop a lot of people from, uh, from like changing things, uh, not getting that exactly correct. But there, I think that is a sentiment that might have been around. Um, but I think part of it is, yeah, like with Jason's question, we don't exactly know how big this crowd is, but we can assume that it would have been enough to um, to get people's attention. One of the gospels records that the priests say to Jesus, like, hey, you quiet down. The Romans are going to hear this, and he says something, even if we were quiet, the stones would cry out. So the, there was some concern, at least, that, like, you're causing attention here, and maybe this isn't what we should be doing. Maybe this isn't the forum for your protest. Uh, maybe you should do it where it's, you know, maybe a little bit more socially acceptable to just raise your hand and say, I don't like things, as opposed to causing a big stir. That's, good. That's a good point for question. Um, I just think this is a great way to look at it. And um, it just makes sense that the church as an organization turned the story into something about personal salvation, as opposed to critiquing systems. Um, so just, or I think it's a great reminder of, to me, at least others might feel differently. Um, the focus of his ministry was systemic, also individual, like radically individual, if I will help this singular person, but um, framing it in a direct challenge to the system of Rome and the system of empire and oppression, as opposed to will, I don't know, Jane Smith be personally sent to heaven when she dies. It's not really a like Jesus isn't showing up saying, Did you did you say the prayer? Did you say the prayer? Did you say the prayer? We got to really make sure we got all of us until 
but yeah, all systems, right? He's showing up and he's really, he's sort of uh, throwing it in the face of the, the political system, the religious system. Um, it's also a more complicated thing to parse out. It's a lot easier of a message for to 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 just say like this is just about you don't worry about it as opposed to like how do we unpack all of this stuff that's all tied together and uh, that's a much more nuanced discussion that has to happen um and, and uh, thought that has to go into it yeah 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 um we want to wave the palms today. The palms today serve serve for us as a reminder that of what kind of what Leanne was was mentioning here. That what Jesus is here doing is not at least not just a personal one on one message, but he's here disturbing the powers that are at bay, disturbing the peace, and saying we have to have a revolution and a, a different way of thinking where we're caring for people differently and we're thinking about things differently. And he's here to, to go against the large powers that are keeping people oppressed and keeping voices silenced and stealing money from people and taking power away from, from everyday people. Good question. Okay. Um, thank you all for coming today. As we leave, Bob, do we have the of our closing words? You can say these this benediction with us. This is the benediction that we say each week. As we go from this place, we commit ourselves to the path of love, honesty, and humility. We dedicate ourselves, as Christ did, to the cause of justice and the courageous embrace of this life, this world, and each other. Amen. Thank you.